being with us here today. Thanks, man. Morning and thank you for being with us here today. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series on the vision for our church. And for two months, we've basically been talking about what kind of church we want to be and how we can be that church just so that we can all be on the same page. So let me read our mission statement again. The Austin CSI Mission Church exists to be an authentic church of Jesus Christ that demonstrates and declares his gospel through worship, evangelism, discipleship, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal. We seek to faithfully live out the traditions of the Church of South India in Austin, Texas. Uh, so for about three weeks, in sort of in the course of explaining the vision, we had a real digging in and a diving into what the gospel actually means. Uh, because if we don't understand that, if we don't have a clear understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is, then everything else we're doing is in vain. All of the effort, all of the work, all of me rushing to work to print off copies illegally for, for our uh, worship together, it's all for nothing. So for three weeks, we talked about gospel meaning, gospel results, and gospel hope. And I'm not going to rehash all those points over again. We put up summaries each week on Facebook, so if you're curious, you can check it out there. Uh, but the main thing you need to take away from these three weeks is this. Um, the gospel of Jesus is not good advice on how you're supposed to live your life. It's not, Brian, you should change this part of your life so that you can go to heaven when you die, and then I decide whether or not I want to listen to that advice. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. It's, it's news. It's a statement about reality. It's a claim about reality that we have to decide, do we think this claim is true or do we think this claim is false? And so what's the claim? What's the gospel claim? The gospel claim is that a first century homeless Jewish man who was executed by the Roman Empire on a cross is actually the Lord and ruler of the entire universe. That's a bold claim. The Lord and ruler of this entire universe, not just earth, but galaxies, universes, um, all of reality, under the dominion of this executed Jewish man who lived in the first century AD. Uh, and we have to decide, do we think that's true or not? Not only is he the ruler, we, we think that he died and that he rose again from the dead three days later. Uh, this, and we believe that because of that promise, that promise of the resurrection that we're living in now, in our church, it's uh, seven, seasons, seven Sundays of Easter. It's the season of Easter. So this entire season, we're celebrating this idea of resurrection. And that's the promise. That's the gospel hope we talked about a little bit last week, which is that this entire world of pain and suffering and coming death and entropy is going to be restored and beautified in a new creation that life will swallow up death. That's a bold claim. And it has huge implications if it's true. Because if, if it's true, then it means that everything you do in this life now has connections with your life in the future, in the new creation. Either the substance of your life and work now will be redeemed, God will purify it and include it in the new creation. That's actually what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 and chapter 15. Or all your life and work will burn away because it's useless. It's straw and hay. It's, it's, it's worth nothing to nobody. So if it's true that Jesus is really the Lord and ruler of the universe, then that means that everything that you do in your life has to submit to his lordship. You can't think about your work, about your family, about your marriage, about your career, about politics, about your purpose in life, apart from this claim that Jesus Christ is supreme. 
And so you have to decide, do, you, do I think this claim is true or not? And honestly, if you don't think it's true, then there's no point coming here. There's no point wasting your time doing all this work that we're doing if you don't think that claim is true. It's a big claim. And I want to stress that because the reason we spent three weeks talking about gospel meaning, gospel results, gospel hope, is that we want to be a church that wholeheartedly looks at that claim uh, that a first century homeless Jewish man is actually the Lord and ruler of the universe. And we say, yeah, that sounds right to us. Yeah, yes and amen, hallelujah. That's what we believe. We think that claim is true. We need to be that church. Uh, So for the next six weeks, we're going to talk about how exactly it is that we demonstrate and declare that gospel, that claim about reality to the rest of the world. And we all know what the gospel is now. The crucified and risen Jesus is the Lord of the world. And so now we're going to talk about how we can witness that truth to the rest of the world. And this week, we're going to talk about that by talking about worship. Weekly worship, corporate worship, basically the worship we're doing gathered here today. Um, today, Today, we're going to be talking about worship in the sense of the gathered church. And what I want you to really take away are three points. Uh, and that's the inevitability of worship, the purpose of worship, and the basis for our worship. So the inevitability of worship, the purpose of worship, and the basis of our worship. Um, and I'm going to have to be jumping around through Scripture to support this. Usually I'll prefer to preach just from one passage because I think that makes a little bit more sense. But I think just this topic is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, so I'm going to have to jump around. Uh, let's go. Purpose, uh, ine- inevitability of worship, purpose of worship, basis for worship. So inevitability. What does worship mean? I think a lot of people, when they say, oh man, the worship at church was so great today, Usually they're talking about like praise and worship. They're talking about songs. They're talking about the music. It's, they're talking about the feeling they get from when, you know, the drums are just you know, on point and the bass is going in your heart. And you're just like, yeah, that's what they're talking about when they talk about, yeah, worship. Um, but that's not really what worship means. Worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. And it's the act of ascribing ultimate worth or giving ultimate value to something. Uh, it's treating something the way it deserves to be treated. Uh, and for Christians, we're supposed to give ultimate value or ultimate worth to the God revealed in Jesus Christ. So in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, God gives the Israelites the first commandment. Do y'all remember this? this is, and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Basically, God is making a claim to the Israelites for their exclusive worship. And Martin Luther, the great uh, German reformer of the church, had a great line in one of his commentaries where he said that all of our sins are really a failure to obey the first commandment. So think about this for a second. All our sins, all our failure to obey the other commandments, two through ten, are really a failure to obey the first commandment, love the Lord your God, uh, you know, above all other gods. Because when we sin, what we're really saying is that there is something that we hold higher, more dear, more precious than God, more ultimate than God. And what is that? That, that thing we're holding dearer than God is an idol. We're breaking the first commandment. So it's tax season. Uh, I think a few of us at least pay taxes. I don't know if y'all do yet. Uh, that's always fun. I got some money back, so that was good. But let's say a good man, a Christian man, cheats on his taxes. He lies to the IRS. He breaks one of the commandments. Why would he do this? 
what we can say is, you know, people who went to Sunday school, well, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We all mess up, even Christians, right? But I think that's too simplistic. Uh, why that particular sin? Why cheating on your taxes? And Martin Luther would say it's because this man has made money and possessions and the status and comfort from having them into something more ultimate and more important and more precious than God and his law and his favor. So do you see, why cheat on that test? Why is that your particular sin? Because good, good grades and career success and making mommy and daddy happy is more important than God and his favor. Why pornography? Why sleep with that girl or pursue that guy? Because you're making lust or a romantic relationship or just a feeling of human connection more important than God in his favor. These are all idols. I get, so I guess the point I'm trying to make here with the inevitability point is that everyone worship. Everyone holds something ultimate. Uh, you may have non-Christian friends or atheist friends who, say, who laugh at you and are like, hey, you worship like a dead Jewish guy. And you should worship, laugh back and say, yeah, what, are, what is it that you're worshiping? Because everyone worships. Everyone has something they see as ultimate, something they see as desirable. And for Christians, the object of our worship, the thing we see as ultimate, should be the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But is it really? Archbishop William Temple, he had something he said. um, He passed away a long time ago, but he was an archbishop in the Church of England. Uh, He had a quote that has always stuck with me. And it's, if you want to know what or who it is that you are worshiping, ask yourself this question. What is it you think about when you don't have anything you have to think about? What is it you think about when you don't have anything you have to think about? I think with this generation in our current like, cultural moment, it's, it's a little tough to answer that question. Because I know for myself, at the first little hint of boredom, uh, I distract myself with Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or texting my friend on my phone. Or, you know, I'm on, I'm on the bus and I'm bored, I pop in my headphones and listen to music or listen to a podcast, I'm entertaining myself. So I never have that moment of quiet where my mind is just quiet and I have nothing I have to think about. I'm binge watching Netflix or I'm doing something. I'm keeping my mind occupied. But inevitably, think about this, there, there is some moment where the phone is dead, the laptop is charging, you have nothing to do. Where is it your mind goes? What is it you think about when you don't have anything you have to think about? That is what you really worship. That is what you are really after. That's what your heart is longing for. So worship is inevitable. The only question is, are we worshiping the God who rescued us in Jesus Christ, or are we worshiping the idol of money, of career success, of lust, of attractiveness, of of status? It's not a question of whether we worship. It's a question of who or what we worship. And that brings us to the second point, the purpose of our worship in the context of the gathered church. Tim Keller has a great illustration that uh, I think explains this, draws this out. And let's imagine you have, well, we're all guys, so this illustration is going to fall a little bit flat. But let's imagine uh, you have a brooch, right? Like one of those little ornament things that you hang onto something that you wear around your neck. uh, And it has a diamond in the middle. Uh, So imagine your grandmother gave your mother the brooch, and now the, the mother gave the daughter the brooch. And, you, and the lady just puts it away. She you know, doesn't really think about it, doesn't know what to do with it. And then the years pass by, and one day, inevitably, she just sees it in her desk. And she thinks, oh, that old thing, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go get this appraised, see what the value of this is. So she takes it to the jeweler's shop. And the jeweler puts that little eye thingy on, you know, where they're like, looking at the diamonds. 
uh, and he's examining it. I just bought a diamond ring a few months ago, so like I still remember he's looking at it for the cut, the clarity, the carrot, the weight, the color, uh, and he's trying to see how valuable is this. And he's turning it over in his hand, and suddenly his eyes go wide, and the little eye thingy just like pops out of his mouth, out of his eyes. And he's astounded because he realizes the value of this diamond he's holding in his hand is worth more than everything else in his entire shop. In this illustration, the lady has not been, for years it's just been in her desk, for years she has not been living in line with the truth of the value of the brooch. Of the brooch. And so the purpose of, the, of worship in the context of the gathered church is to be like that jeweler. We are going over the excellencies of God and of Christ together to remind ourselves of how valuable it is, this thing that we have, but that we've put away in some dusty corner of our mind. Um, when we you know, say the adoration in the liturgy, when we say confession, we are reminding ourselves of how lovely God is and how you know, filthy our own hearts are in comparison to that beauty and light and love. Uh, when we read scripture, we, we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness in the Old Testament and of his faithfulness in the, in the New Testament. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of God's loving self-sacrifice on the cross. We do that in our preaching. We do that in the hymns and songs we sing. Everything is to train us to recognize the value and beauty and worth of God. And actually, real quick, I just wanted to highlight. I was thinking about this during our second lesson. Our second lesson is actually like a clear statement of what the gospel is. Uh, and I'm just going to read it. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. It's a, a clear statement of the beauty of God. This is talking about Jesus. Paul is talking about Jesus in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood on the cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. This is the purpose of the liturgy and the readings. It's to remind ourselves of these truths. It's to show us the beauty of this diamond that we have in our hands and that we throw away. Uh, Everything is to train us to recognize the value and beauty and worth of our God. So that's the purpose of our gathered worship, to teach us to give God glory. And I want to be clear about that idea of giving God glory, because when I was younger, I misunderstood that whenever someone talked about giving God glory, like God was some dictator who needed weaker people to tell him how awesome he was. Um, As Christians, we have to remember that God, the God of Christianity, is a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity, perfect within himself. That's why we recite the Apostles' Creed, to remind ourselves of that truth. 
Um, so God doesn't really need to tell anyone how great he is. He is complete in himself. He's perfectly glorifying within himself. He wants us to give him glory because if we give anything else glory, it's going to destroy us. Our God is a jealous God, but he's jealous for our sake to protect us because he knows that all these other idols that we're chasing after are going to destroy us. So again, that's the purpose of worship, to teach us to give God glory. But real briefly, there's another purpose. A big theme in the Bible that we don't really have time to get into and trace out is this idea that God is renewing the world to be a temple for himself where he can fully dwell. This is why in Revelation 21 and 22, there's this image of heaven coming down on earth in sort of like a marriage ceremony. Heaven and earth are reunited. And Jesus, as king of the, wor- as king of the world, has done, is doing, and will do the work that completes that renewal. But as the church, we are Jesus's body. And so we participate in the work that he's continuing to do and that he will do to renew the world. And so when we meet for worship, then God really does come down into our presence now, today, to dwell with us. It's like heaven punches a hole into the reality that we are. And we have to believe that. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, there's this beautiful picture of what happens when the church, even a small group like us, gathers together to worship God. As we worship, the angels in heaven worship. And all of creation, all of the animals, the rocks, the trees, worship. It's sort of like we're a conduit for the worship of God. And I'm being literal. I'm not being metaphorical here. When we, when we few gather here in this space to sing hymns, to pray psalms, to recite the creed, hear scripture, heaven is opening up right here in this space and uniting with the world here in our hearts. And so in a very real sense, just the act of the church in genuine worship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is participating in, renewal, in renewing the world. This too is the purpose of worship, and it's, it's a great mystery. Actually, the Orthodox and Martha churches have a, have a picture of this. That's why they have the curtain, and when the worship begins, the curtain opens up. It's a symbol that God is entering into our space as we worship right now. So this is a great mystery, and it's a wonderful mystery, the, the mystery of true worship. But the truth is, none of us worship perfectly, not you and not me. You come here, and during the hymns and the liturgy, you're bored, you're distracted, and for good reason. You have a million other things you have to do after this. I'm not the greatest speaker in the world. It's not like we have the best band or any band here or music. Uh, and so your sense of delight and joy and peace and even a little fear that right now, For real, you are in the presence of a holy and loving God, that the veil of reality has been torn away and that heaven is invading earth right now as we sit here and worship and sing and say the liturgy. Um, You don't really feel it. You don't really feel it. And not just now, but going out into the world, you can't always say that you give God the, the ultimate value and the ultimate worth in everything that you're doing and that that explains all your choices in your life. And the same is true for me. Uh, When I'm here, I'm trying to remind myself that God should be ultimate, that I want God to be ultimate in my life, that I want God to be ultimate here. But the more I try, the more I sense my failure. I I made that joke a few weeks ago. You never know how out of shape you are until you start to try to run again. Uh, Well, it's exactly like that. It's only when you really start trying to worship that you start to realize that your efforts to make God ultimate are always falling short, always falling short. Um, even here, I'm worried about how, whether I'm making sense to y'all, uh, whether the liturgy makes sense to y'all, uh, 
what we can do differently in the future. These are all my worries instead of making God ultimate. And it gets even worse after I leave this place. I have a wedding I'm planning for the end of the year. Uh, I have a job where I want to do well. And in all of those things, I see how even when I try to make God ultimate, I fail. So what's our hope? Well, before I get to what's our hope, 